Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How's it going? Great, Anne. I am excited to be podcasting with you again. Yes, I think we'll have some good conversation as usual. So you're going to start out talking about COVID. And I know some people like, don't turn it off because this is <laughs> yeah, I know we're generally sick about COVID. This is I, um, so you sent me this article and I was like, oh, I'm learning COVID. I don't want to read it. And then I was like, oh, this is so fascinating about the components of breast milk, the way the authors um, went about this. And so um, don't worry too much that it's related to COVID, dear listeners. And I'm going to tell you some really geeky stuff that I actually got super into. So um, this article was published in September of 2023 in Scientific Reports. And it is titled Breast Milk from COVID-19 Negative Lactating Mothers Shows Neutralizing Activity Against SARS-CoV-2 by um, Daniela Morneroli et al. And um, I also think I have like a little scientific crush on this author because I started um, clicking a few of her other publications and now I'm like, oh, I need to read that and that. So we might revisit her again. Nice. Um, Breast milk protects newborns from infections through specific and nonspecific compounds. This study investigated the neutralizing activity against SARS-CoV-2 of breast milk from SARS-CoV-2 negative unvaccinated mothers and compared it to that from infected nursing mothers. The authors enrolled women after COVID-19 swab testing results upon maternity admission and divided them into two groups. Group A, the COVID-19 positive, and group B, the negative mothers. Breast milk was randomly sampled at two days postpartum, seven and 20 days. And there were 19 samples from group A and 41 from group B. A micro-neutralization assay was used to determine the 50% neutralization titer. And my understanding of that is they took these milk samples that were heat inactivated and serially diluted, and then they mixed in SARS-CoV-2 virions at a certain rate with the breast milk um, dilutions and incubated them. And then they took those milk preparations and they seeded them on um, cell culture microplates and incubated them for five days. So basically, they tried to, um, you know, stop the virions with the breast milk, and then they put it all in cell culture to see what damage it could do. After the five days, um, they looked, inspected for cytopathic effects with an inverted optical microscope, and 50% neutralizing endpoint titer was determined. And so they did this with various dilutions of the breast milk. They used a reed munch technique that I've never heard of, and they did this in a biosafety level three facility. Um, these authors also went through like amazing, like it was under this much CO2 and this dilution. And if you are a microbiologist, you should read this because it was geeky and you'll love it. Um, for all the samples, the presence of neutralizing antibodies um, 
from you know antibodies from people who had had COVID and had those specific um, antibodies was also determined. So what did they find? Group A had 100%, these are the positive mothers, neutralizing samples at two days postpartum, which declined at seven days and 20 days. The group B samples exhibited neutralizing antibody at as well, 90% of the samples at seven days postpartum. Wow. So that group B is the one that didn't have the, the antibodies. Was, yeah. Right. So they don't have specific cells, but they're still neutralizing uh, 90% of the samples seven days um, post delivery. Negative mother samples showed no correlation between those titers and antibodies' presence suggesting that it was nonspecific breast milk components um, that may exert antiviral action against SARS-CoV-2. And then um, we're gonna go into the discussion because I think a lot of the um, different factors are so interesting. And we've talked about some of these in the past. Remarkably, the samples from the negative moms exhibited neutralizing potency with the majority of samples um, with this antiviral impact being from the second time point at seven days. The results of this study also confirm the ability of milk from COVID positive women to neutralize SARS-CoV-2, which was already found in the literature. Previous studies have shown persistence of antibodies in breast milk, even at 90 days and up to six months. Of note, colostrum collection two days postpartum was very difficult for mothers and sometimes impossible despite their best efforts. And um, you know, we talked about this in a previous study that it sometimes is just hard for people to collect colostrum to oh, yeah. to to studies early. Yeah. With regard to presence of the um, COVID antibodies by Elisa Assay, um, as expected, the positive mothers in Group A showed variable presence and amount directed against the virus at different time points, and these decreased over time, but not significantly, similar to previous studies. But surprisingly, the presence of antibodies detected against SARS-CoV-2 was also demonstrated in the milk of negative mothers in group B, but to a lesser extent and with a lower percent of inhibition than in the milk of the positive mothers. And the authors say, this could be due to any previous SARS-CoV-2 infections, which were asymptomatic and thus unrecognized and unreported by the mother, or intriguingly, to the presence of antibodies especially of the IgA class directed against other coronaviruses, mm -hmm. but capable of cross-reacting with SARS-CoV-2 and thus affecting the test as already shown in previous studies in literature on plasma and saliva. That's interesting. Wait, so I just want to get this straight. So this milk was fresh, right? So they expressed the milk and then they used it right away. So it wasn't milk that had been stored for, you know, a week or something like that. Correct. That's important to know because fresh milk is such a different animal than frozen. Well, milk. it is, but they heat inactivated the milk before they tested it. And so if we think about the different components activity, we wouldn't expect live cells. So why did they heat inactivate it? Just I, to kill viruses? Kill other viruses or something? Perhaps, or perhaps they really wanted to look at proteins and, um, you know, polysaccharides and not live cell effects. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, because um, antibodies, a large percentage of antibodies get killed like through the donor milk 
you know, well, I think, you know, it depends on what temperature and how yeah. long, and it was, so it would be an interesting discussion to have with the microbiologists, but they did yeah. not elaborate upon that part. Hmm. The specific activity against um, SARS-CoV-2 of the antibodies detected in the milk of positive mothers was supported by the direct correlation found between the presence of these antibodies and the neutralizing activity. But on the contrary, this correlation was not found in the milk of the negative mothers. And so basically they're saying, yes, there was some COVID antibody in the negative mothers, but there really wasn't a correlation between that and the neutralizing effect, which really points to these other factors. So they say this observation supports the hypothesis that anti- Oh, oh you dropped something. No, my Roombas tried to turn on. I didn't need a vacuum. Oh, you robot. Robot. <laughs> a little competition there with your vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to try that part again. Um, the observation supports the hypothesis that the antiviral activity might be exerted both by nonspecific components naturally present in the breast milk and independently by the activity of antibodies. It is already known that breast milk, especially colostrum, is rich in anti-infective substances with nonspecific activity. Several components in breast milk with pro proven antiviral capacity have been described such as cytokines, polyunsaturated fatty acids, immunostimulating proteins, glycoproteins such as lactoferrin, glycated components such as mucins, human milk oligosaccharides, and extracellular vesicles that have broad antimicrobial activity. Greater that, oh, can I interrupt? Do they say anything about how the microbiome of the, of the infants plays an important role to like having all these prebiotics feed the right bacteria in the infant gut, and then the byproducts of that bacteria also playing a role in fighting infection? They do not hear, but there is a... Um, study related to the microbiome that is coming down the pike. Be patient. Oh, perfect. Okay. Can't wait. Um, <laughs> greater understanding of these compounds may aid in the development of new strategies to combat viral infections, even in old age. Mm -hmm. um, the authors remind us that the American Academy of Pediatrics has confirmed that breastfeeding can help protect neonates against viral infection through active mediators in human milk Functional proteins in breast milk have aroused interest as factors involved in its antiviral activity. And among these, tenacin C is a well-studied protein for its ability to bind to the chemokine co-receptor site of HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, possibly explaining why most HIV-1 exposed breastfed infants are protected against mucosal HIV transmission. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I always think about like when babies, I say to parents all the time, when babies spit up and like the milk shoots out both their mouth and their nose because they're so tiny, that is coating all of their mucous membranes with yeah. I IgA. The main immunoglobulin in milk is the one that coats mucous membranes to protect us. But I never thought about Tennyson C because I had never heard of it. It has been um, observed that the immune response is necessary for this viral infection inhibition and the mechanism is mediated by genes that encode active mediators such as lactoferrin. It's been demonstrated 
that elevated levels of lactoferrin during SARS-CoV-2 infection enhance the immune response via natural killer cell activation. Mm. Lactoferrin inhibits coronavirus host cell binding by blocking the interaction between coronavirus and heparin sulfate polyglycans. So these are molecules that are in the cell membrane that um, are part of the way that viruses bind to cells. Mm -hmm. um, it prevents virus spike protein binding to ACE2, preventing virus attachment and fusion as well to the host cells. And lactoferrin may interfere um, with these ACE2 and HSPG pathways. Um, the, there are some researchers that have shown that lactoferrin can prevent SARS pseudovirus entrance into cells. Um, and because virus adherence to the host cell is required for infection, um, the virus uses glycoprotein and ACE2 metallopeptidase receptors. And um, the receptor analogs are essentially competing with the virus. So some of the things in the milk are binding to the receptors on the cell that would allow viruses to attach and come in and blocking them out. Mm -hmm. Kind of like being decoys, almost like how oligosaccharides are decoys in some way. Yeah, and now we're gonna talk about oligosaccharides. Cool. So there are another class of molecules in breast milk that show promise for their antiviral capabilities. These complex combinations of glucose, galactose, fucose, um, and other um, molecules have been shown to have antiviral capacity and they have the same effect as acting as a decoy and occupying and modifying virus receptor sites, preventing entry into the cell. And um, HMOs may interfere with virus binding, lowering their pathogenicity. Um, they offer an effect against a wide variety of um, flu viruses in the same manner. And interestingly, not all nursing mothers produce the same classes of oligosaccharides. Their synthesis and composition um, from crucial components are dependent on fucosylation by um, these FUT2 and 3 genes. And so when I was reading about this, I was like, what is fucosylation? Like I just did not learn about this in medical school. I learned about methylation of genes yeah. and how it alters expression. And so um, this is sort of a, a similar process by which different um, proteins are expressed that it was really, you know, um, explained by scientists in my later years of medical school when I was not paying attention to the science lab. But it's so interesting because there's inter-individual variability and this changes the pool of oligosaccharides that any person may have, which can then significantly change um, how effective their neutralizing activity is. Yes. Yeah. There have been studies looking at oligosaccharides in among people in different countries, like oligosaccharides that um, act as decoys and allow you know, bacteria to attach so that some countries where there's more typhoid, you see oligosaccharides that are anti-typhoid, but you're not going to find them here among women in the United States who have never experienced typhoid. They don't come from countries where typhoid exists. Um, so it's a that natural evolution of oligosaccharides 
you know, being turned on and bodies where, you know, appropriate for the environment. With the different yeah, but it's not necessarily something that you're going to be able to, you know, move to that country and develop like you would an, an immunobody. An right. So in other words, if you're, if you're an American and you're breastfeeding your baby in a country where there's typhoid is endemic, um, your baby's not going to be as protected as someone who lives there, their baby, who's nursing their baby, where they were born and raised there, that baby's going to be more protected. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we won't be importing donor milk from various countries. Exactly. Right. <laughs> okay. There's, um, this is almost the end. They're just talking a little bit about um, the um, study was constrained by its small sample size and the amp absence of comparative spectrometric examination between samples to determine which of these compounds actually explain the outcomes. Um, but the authors believe this is the first study to assess the extent of the antiviral activity of breast milk collected from negative unvaccinated mothers, um, not only suggesting, but measuring the possible role of the innate human milk compounds against SARS-CoV-2. And this provides fascinating insights for future research, such as identifying the differences in composition between neutralizing and non-neutralizing samples and understanding which substances in breast milk have this non-specific antiviral effect that could be, um, and what could be the clinical implications for their supplementation for human health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, where I always find this clinically helpful and I already do this with people when they say, I'm going to get the COVID vaccine during lactation because I want to protect my baby. Um, or, you know, is my milk any good if I haven't had COVID or if I haven't had the vaccine? And I say, you know, we don't know how much these, how much like, especially as the antibodies switch from IgA to IgG after vaccination or after infection, we don't know how well the IgG in breast milk actually survives the gut to really protect that infant from COVID, um, but there's so many other factors that are antiviral. Like it's all about the whole kitten caboodle, right? It's not just, if I don't have the antibodies, my milk is trash. And this is something that I don't even like talking about antibodies in breast milk because it kind of like, it's not fair to all the other components that have been working really hard for millions of years to get to where they are now. Like why would we not give them center stage two, right? Uh, that's very kind of you to keep their feelings in mind. But, but the problem here is that, you know, lactoferrin, which is a very, the, the most copious, very important protein, antiviral, you know, takes, steals iron from bacteria, blah, 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 is now added to formula. So now suddenly it's like, we're more like breast milk because we added this component. So I feel like as we discover more of these components, it all goes to the benefit of the formula company to lacto-engineer milk. And yeah, these babies may be healthier, but it's just not the same. And one of my concerns is that, and this is kind of going a little bit off topic, is that there is so much research going to milk components for kind of the wrong reasons, because I think that we can put all this money into researching all these components that are eventually going to be used by formula companies. But if we don't put the research into how we can help people breastfeed longer, how we can support health systems to support their patients. In other words, this research and components is not going to get people to breastfeed longer, right? It's going no, to get no. I agree. I, 
I agree. I mean, I wonder some of this research may get done because there is like it's it's our capitalistic society like there's funding because there's this drive to create this better formula so maybe you know maybe there's a benefit because lord knows there's nobody who's that interested in funding clinical research on how to you know help people to be more successful i don't i could rant all day but instead i'm going to tell you about this other article that um, one other comment and that is like you mentioned that some of these antiviral components may help us with dealing with uh understanding like ways that we can combat viruses and people who are older um and uh so it just brings to mind you know, the fact that we're starting the rsv vaccine for people who are over 65 and then i'm thinking maybe we should just give them breast milk yeah you should offer breast milk I mean, it is really interesting because there have been some studies in the past that, you know, there are people selling breast milk on the internet and there are some people who are buying it, you know, sometimes they have really, really difficulty tolerating other food because they've had chemotherapy or whatever. But I mean, yeah, there are some adult studies. It's, yeah. it's really interesting. All of the things I think I am hopeful that some of the things that they learn about these different compounds will help us to create better medicines in the future, just antiviral medicines, because that is something that we need for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. So we're going to talk very briefly about a study that is titled Beneficial Effects of Lamosi lactobacillus ruteri um, and bifidobacterium brevae on mood imbalance, self-confidence, and breastfeeding in women during the first trimester postpartum. That was published in the journal Nutrients in August of 2023. Um, the first author is Franco Vicarioto, um, and it was um, published. It was the research was done in Italy. The, in the abstract, the authors state, the post-delivery period could be characterized by psychological distress leading to postpartum depression. The present clinical study assesses the effect of probiotic supplementation containing um, L. ruteri and B. brevet on the mother's mood and breastfeeding quality during the first trimester after delivery. This study was a randomized double-blind controlled trial carried out on 200 healthy new mothers divided into a group taking a supplement containing those two probiotics plus multivitamins and a control group just taking a multivitamin complex for 90 days. Symptoms related to maternal depression and breastfeeding quality were evaluated at days 45 and 90 using the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale and the Breastfeeding Self-Efficacy Scale, short form. The results showed at days 45 and 90, the probiotic treatment significantly ameliorated the mother's mood compared to the control treatment, p-value of less than 0.001. Likewise, the breastfeeding quality and the baby's cries significantly improved in the probiotic group. The authors concluded 
microbiota alterations could influence a post-delivery woman's mental state. According to our results, L. ruderi and B. brevi, and they have specific um, strain numbers listed as well, are potential candidates that are able to improve stress resilience in the postpartum period. So, so yeah, well, I think that, you know, if they're saying that uh, there's a cause and effect, you know, like they say that the probiotic treatment significantly ameliorated the mother's mood compared to the control group. I mean, it, we don't know for sure, right? If that caused it or if it was just an association. Well, I would say I have several concerns about the study, just in terms of the design and also some of the assumptions that were made. And I am, you know, going to share those with you. I think there is a lot of, um, interesting background and discussion that is in this article, you know, for people who are interested in microbiome and the role of probiotics, I think that it is certainly worth a read. I will say that um, the, there have been some previous in vitro studies suggesting that these probiotics can influence endogenous production of GABA and serotonin um, and improve stress-related parameters. And um, following those studies, there were some different clinical trials carried out in target populations, such as stressed students during exams and employees in the early pandemic, showing improvement in cognitive functions, mood, and sleep quality when they were given probiotics. Um, there's also a lot of discussion about like the gut-brain access and sort of what we see in depressed people in terms of changes in the microbi gut microbiome and um, even that they've done fecal transplants from humans who are depressed to rats, giving yes. them a new microbiome. And this resulted in um, behavior that they have sort of decided as depressed rat behavior, like failure to swim as hard when they're being put in a swimming test and lethargy. And I, I mean, did they have the I, rat smile? Maybe they could measure rat smile. I just, I cannot even imagine what it is like to have a life that is revolving around testing for fecal transplants, making rats depressed. But in the water when you don't know how to swim, I mean, talk about like depressing by itself. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a rat stress test. Um, it's it sounded horrible, um, but that aside, I think that um, you know they they basically said that in in this population they believed that supplements could improve new mother psychological and physical well being um, and reduce the risk of developing postpartum depression through modulation of gut-brain access. And as a secondary outcome, self-confidence and breastfeeding ease were evaluated as a marker of mother's mental state in the postpartum period. Indeed, these two outcomes were related to the lactation performance, decreasing excessive baby crying and reducing the production of intestinal gas due to relaxed attitude of the new mothers. And I take really big issue with the causality that the authors suggest. I mean, yeah. I think in previous studies of probiotics given to pregnant women who have a prior child 
who was diagnosed with colic, um, it suggested that their subsequent child was less fussy. And I think that it is far more likely that baby fussiness and crying influences maternal mood and depression rather yeah. than the other way around. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, like there's some structural things about this study, like typically the first like table one in like every study is like this comparison of the control group and the um, study group that looks at their you know, baseline factors, like, were these people who had, uh, you know, what's their number of pregnancies and their parity? What is their age? What is their, you know, history of depression? Like, none of that was not included in this. Yeah, I noticed that. That's not, yeah. That's and so not. I don't know how you can say that breastfeeding self-efficacy was different in the groups when you don't have that. It's just not, it's just not a good study. Right. Um. They didn't do an initial evaluation of mood, like at day zero, they said they didn't want to like expose people to the Edinburgh because it wasn't an appropriate time place. And they thought it would influence their later answers, but that particular survey tool is used during pregnancy. And so I just think that was inappropriate and it would have also informed whether or not there was a baseline difference in these groups before the intervention. Yeah, and, their um, exclusion criteria, and they just said people who suffered from severe psychiatric disorders, but they didn't say anything about people who have a history of anxiety or depression. Yeah, and yeah. so I just think like it wasn't it wasn't a good starting place. In addition to that, I had a really um, like they did say in the study that breastfeeding was their secondary outcome, but if you're going to use breastfeeding as an outcome, you need to account for whether or not all of the participants were breastfeeding because in the like, you know, first table, it was like intention to breastfeed star, star, star. Um, it didn't really matter to them if they stopped. Well, they didn't report on whether or not people were more successful. They only reported on whether or not they had scored themselves as effective. And what does that mean in the context of, I don't even know if all of the participants are breastfeeding. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that, I mean, this is just a really good example of why it's important to not look at bottom lines at conclusions of studies and say, okay, I just read it. And now I know it's, you know, here's, here's evidence, you know, because I just feel like so often, I don't know who's on these review boards and, you know, who's, you know, these are supposed to be peer reviewed, but who's reviewing them? Do they know anything about breastfeeding? Do they know anything about this particular topic? So you and I, I mean, this probably happens to you, but I get asked to review all kinds of stuff from different journals. And it can be something about something I know nothing about. And I'm like, I can't review that. I have no idea, like the nuances of, of you know, where the fault can be in the design of this protocol. And so, um, and I feel bad that, even when I'm asked to review um, articles of things that I have a lot of familiarity with, I don't have time. And then I think, okay, if I don't review it, who are they going to get? Not that I'm the only person that can review something, but you know, look, there are not a lot of us, right, who are breastfeeding medicine specialists. And um, so I think there's a lot, I think that contributes to just a lot of schlock, which is another reason why we need board certification in breastfeeding lactation medicine. 
It's interesting. It makes me think about, you know, this, like, I'm always like, how can you take the human error out of things? How can you protocolize things? I feel like it might be useful to have some sort of guidance for reviewers looking at articles that relate to breast. And like, it could also be used by people who are writing protocols and are creating studies. Like, you know, these researchers are really excited about probiotics. They yeah. aren't really excited about breastfeeding. That's just another thing that they sort of put in as a sub category. And so if we had guidance that said, if you're doing a study and breastfeeding is being measured, you need to X, Y, and Z. And then the reviewers could take that checklist and say, okay, I'm reviewing an article that's related to lactation. Did they appropriately define exclusive versus any? Did they appropriately define all of these things? And then, you know, maybe there would be less crummy articles. I think that's, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if, they, if other disciplines have done that. That's really interesting. That's something to ask um, the editor of Breastfeed Medicine Journal and some other mm -hmm. folks out there. That That is interesting because I do feel like peer review is so subjective and it just depends on one's own experiences. And Well, and it's one more thing that we're expected to do that nobody taught us to do. So I was first asked to review an article. I was pretty young out of training and I was like, oh yeah, that sounds intimidating. Only like years later did I learn that there is, you know, you can now Google and be like, how do you peer review? And like, there is some training that you can do. There's some guidance, but no one ever suggested to me at the time like they didn't really ask me for qualifications. They didn't say, you know, you should do it this way. You literally get a form to fill out and it's got some blanks to fill in. And I was like, right. you know, there were some obvious flaws with that first study. So it was easy for me to be like, no, thank you. And this is why, yeah. Yeah. but I could do a more nuanced job now than I could have done then. Yeah, I think I think there are some other issues too, though, like not just having great peer reviewers, but also the the need for these art. You know, there's so much competition among these journals, and they need the articles. They're looking for articles. You know, you probably get these emails every day, and we're looking for an article. Here, we'll give you a discount if you submit an article to us. You can have a free. We want you to be editor of a, like a series on blah blah blah, and it's like you know. It, it, so they're looking for articles. And so they're not so interested in peer reviewers who are super, super detailed and uh, uh, and strict about criteria because they just want to also get these some of these. Well, and it's, you know, sometimes the study was done years before. And so you can't go back and clean up the spilled milk. Like right. if you didn't collect a particular piece of data or something was done poorly, is there benefit to letting people know what you did? Yeah. There is, but we all have to be really critical when we're reading journal articles. And when the headlines hit the lay press, it's never as sophisticated yes. as I wish it were. Yes, absolutely. Um, so let's see. So should we talk about um, another lousy study? <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I think I think oh, we could we could um, we could talk about one that I actually thought was really really fascinating. Um, it was. Um, called Sex Differences in Lipids, a Life Course Approach um, in atherosclerosis. 
the journal, September 2023, by um, Kirsten Holven and Janine Reuters in um, Norway and the Netherlands. And these authors wrote uh, a bunch about um, cholesterol and other lipids in men and women throughout their life course, and I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. So differences between men and women in lipids and lipoproteins are observed in distribution and trajectory from infancy to adulthood in the general population. However, these differences are more pronounced in hereditary lipid disorders such as familial hypercholesterolemia when absolute cholesterol levels are higher from birth onwards. In early life course, girls compared to boys have higher low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, LDL, levels, and total cholesterol, while high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, HDL, levels are similar. In early adulthood to middle age, women have lower LDL and higher HDL, and um, those increase the low-density increases and the HDL levels decrease in men. In the elderly, all lipids, total cholesterol, um, LDL, HDL, and triglyceride levels decrease, but these are more pronounced in men. Lipid levels are also affected by specific transitions in girls, women, such as the menstrual cycle, pregnancy, breastfeeding, and menopause. Lipid levels fluctuate during the menstrual cycle during pregnancy, a physiological increase of LDL and even larger increase in triglyceride levels are observed. Pregnancy has a double impact on LDL accumulation in women with familial hypercholesterolemia as they have this increase and they have to stop statins. So the absolute increase in LDL is higher than in women without um, this genetic disorder. In the menopausal transition, women develop a more adverse lipid profile. Therefore, it's important to take into account both sex and life course when assessing lipid profile. Um, so the authors, they have an introduction where they you know, remind us about the main lipids in the body and the fact that triglycerides are really a long-term um, way to store carbohydrate as opposed to cholesterol, which is used to make sex hormones. And um, they talk about sort of in more detail, the things that I just discussed, but then they go through specific um, female reproductive stages. Uh, they talk about the menstrual cycle and the fact that as estrogen varies in our body, the um, lipid levels change. And so it actually will change people's um, testing. If you check their cholesterol, it's probably better to do it um, during their menses than at other times in their cycle. And also they talk about the impact of PCOS and um, how this can affect cholesterol. It's a very prevalent disease with six to 20%. Um, on the specific criteria used in the population. And so because um, lifestyle interventions in women with PCOS can have a favorable effect on weight and lipids, this is first line therapy, but they're talking a lot about how 
really, even though I think a lot of people, including myself, consider men to have more um, risk factors in terms of lipid profile, women do for the majority of their lifespan um, mm -hmm. because it's higher in earlier age and in later age. They talk about contraception and the impacts of um, contraceptive pills. Yeah, I, for years, I would see people with <clears throat> skyrocketed um, cholesterols on the birth control pill and then take it away just because it just seemed, didn't seem safe for them to continue with such high cholesterol. And I had no idea. Considerably. Oh, yeah, it has a huge impact. I mean, maybe it's it's funny. Like, I was thinking about the difference, you know, just being a pediatrician versus a family doctor. I'm sure, you know, I've had just generally less training related to managing cholesterol and the impacts on later cardiovascular disease. We look at children, you know, between the age of one and two and screen them for familial disorders. Like if you have high cholesterol when you're one, yes, we need to deal with that because the lifetime impact is huge. Yeah. Um, but it never occurred to me because certainly there are plenty of teenagers who are using contraceptive pills, both for contraception and for dysmenorrhea that right. I should consider that history and, and talk to them about contraception options that could impact their future cardiovascular health. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's huge. And, and, you know, those of us who are in internal medicine, family medicine, med ped, you know, we do, you know, it's, we, we do routine cholesterol screening, you know, and we, we just are drowning in cholesterol levels. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think this is the part that I really wanted to get into then was when we get past that and we get into pregnancy and breastfeeding, um, there is actually an association with poor fertility that is associated with dyslipidemia. Mm. And um, I did not know that. I think that what I did know was that I have had patients who have um high cholesterol who, you know, come asking about medication safety with breastfeeding. And it's been frustrating for me because I think just like with all medications, many physicians don't have enough training on how to make good recommendations around medication safety. And the fact that, you know, even within a class, this is like, you know, it goes with to the work that you've been doing on trash the pump and dump like you can look and say what is the safest drug in this class right. people forget that we actually give lipid lowering medications to young children and so if there's a tiny bit in the milk it actually could be acceptable and telling someone they should stop breastfeeding prematurely is going to have a negative impact on their long-term cardiovascular health because right. we know that lactation decreases strokes, it decreases heart disease. Right. But also, and you were about to get to this, so you mentioned that cholesterol goes up during pregnancy. And I often tell people like lactation helps to reverse that effect of that additional visceral fat, fat in the belly, arms, and then also that high cholesterol that they've had to deal with for nine months. Well, and it's really interesting because 
in general, like everyone's boys and girls, cholesterol goes down during puberty because your body is using that cholesterol to make all these sex hormones to do things. And I think, you know, in pregnancy, it makes sense that cholesterol will go up. Your body is using those reserves to make more estrogen to maintain the pregnancy and to deliver cholesterol to the fetus. And then, you know, later on when you're breastfeeding, you are making milk and you're putting lipids into that milk and you're using it for, you know, all of uh, that, you know, as those fat globules are going through the cell membrane in these globs of uh, cell membrane, there's a lot of lipids that are going out that way. But it really is, you know, I think fascinating both to look at these changes in the life course, but also with that, you know, they highlight that relative higher cholesterol that people with familial disorders face and how it can be quite a number of years that they are not getting adequately treated. Because if we say to somebody, you shouldn't be on cholesterol lowering medications while you're trying to conceive, because that could have a negative impact on the fetus. Sometimes it takes people a long time or they're, you know, having a number of children and this is a, you know, decades long pursuit. Yeah can be really, really significant for them, especially if they don't breastfeed, if they go from pregnancy to pregnancy to pregnancy, but they're not taking their statin and they're not breastfeeding, they can end up with major problems. Yeah. Yeah. So then, um, as you were saying, I was going to get to six weeks after delivery levels of total cholesterol, LDL and triglycerides are reduced compared to pregnancy levels. However, they're still higher than pre-pregnancy levels. Um, this fall in lipid level seems to occur more rapidly in breastfeeding women and um, women who solely formula fed their infants maintained elevated serum triglyceride levels three times longer than those who breastfed their infants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really fascinating. So I think the question here is that if someone's breastfeeding and they do for their, their cholesterol level, so they get the, you know, the message from their doctor, like, oh, you do for your annual cholesterol screen or your five-year, usually it's a five-year, you know, cholesterol screen. And then they ask their doctor saying, uh, should I get it done while I'm lactating? Uh, what should we say? Should we say, it's, oh, well, it's going to be lower than it was if you weren't breastfeeding, or would we say, uh, it's going to be higher than if you were not breastfeeding. Um, what would we say? Wow, that's a really good question. And I don't know that there is enough um, data for me to turn to the, you know, like in pediatrics, we have like the CBC chart to look and see like, is this baby premature or term? Are they one week old? Are they one month old? Are they two month old? Like the CBC guidelines really change. And in reading this article, what I took away was if you're one month postpartum versus six months postpartum and you're still breastfeeding, they're going to be differences. That being said, you know, imagine this is a pretty young woman who is 25 and she's not had her cholesterol checked since she was a child. If she even had it done then, I would say it's better to go ahead and have it checked. Just keeping in mind that if it's normal, excellent. If it's elevated, we might have to think, oh, you know, this mild elevation could be related to your physiological state of lactation. And we don't need to get all bent around the axle about telling you to stop breastfeeding to get it lower or to be able to recheck it. We can just check it again next year. 
Yeah, yeah. I think basically, you know, it is better, right? I mean, I think that when women are breastfeeding, their cholesterol is lower. Um, so I think that, you know, it. this is one of the things that I'll tell people. Um, so I'm looking at the same article and it says that breastfeeding does improve the lipid profile in healthy women. Um, so, and you had mentioned that six weeks after delivery, the levels of cholesterol, LDL, and triglycerides are lower as compared to pregnancy. Um, and so, uh, and then it said that other studies found an association between breastfeeding and HDL levels, where um, higher levels of HDL, which is a good cholesterol, will be maintained until they wean. So I think overall, like breastfeeding is good for lipids um, and helps to reverse all the negative effects from pregnancy. So, um, but I think we could say that it, and also they're in, you know, it probably also depends on whether or not they're menstruating postpartum. If they're lactating and menstruating, their cholesterol is going to be different than if they are not menstruating. Because as you mentioned in menopause with lower estrogen levels, um, LDL and um, LDL goes up, the bad cholesterol goes up. So I think I would probably take whatever cholesterol someone has with a grain of salt and then just repeat it like after lactation, just almost out of curiosity more than anything. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah. It's so interesting. It's, uh, I just feel like things are way more complicated than um, we were taught yeah. <laughs> back in the day. Well, the other thing about the familial hyperlipidemia, right? So these are people with super high cholesterols, oftentimes like 250 to 300. Their bad cholesterol is oftentimes 200. And those are indications to treat with medication. And a lot of adults who are, um, you know, childbearing right now in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, they've never had a screening cholesterol. They never had it done when they were between 9 and 11 or 8 and 11, which is when it's recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I think by the American Heart, the American Heart Association too has the same recommendation. Um, so we want to catch those people early, right? And so if so, it would be really important. You know, they're kind of captive audience when they're pregnant, right? Because they're getting blood tests done. So it seems like that's a good time to be checking cholesterol. And in fact, did you read in that article? Maybe there was another article that in Europe they routinely screen cholesterol during pregnancy with the intention of treating it. Did they mention that in that article? I, it sounds familiar. Honestly, I read the whole thing more than a week ago and I don't remember exactly, but I do remember reading that they, people were getting checked during pregnancy. Yeah, I think in Europe, um, they, it's more like, I don't think they do that here at all, but um, uh, that they, that they do check cholesterols during pregnancy and identify those with hyperlipidemia and they treat them actually to try to lower to lower it because it will increase that risk of heart disease, stroke and um, uh, and you know other vascular events when they're older if it's not treated. And again, it makes sense because a lot of people go into pregnancy and have no idea what their cholesterol is. Um, especially if they've moved around a lot, they don't have access to the records, their parents didn't tell them what their cholesterol was when they were a kid if they did have it done. And yeah. so I think it's a good idea to, you know, just like we want people to maintain their breast cancer screening um, routine when they're lactating, we also want people to maintain their um, cholesterol screening as well. 
Yeah, this is really interesting. It says cholesterol is rarely measured during pregnancy because of this known rise in cholesterol levels. The percentage increase in total in LDL and triglyceride levels was similar in women with and without the um, familial hyperlipidemia. However, this is you know much higher absolute levels in those with yeah. the trait. Among um, women with familial hyperlipidemia, the this is in um, European units, there were increased leading to increased procoagulant activity and enhanced endothelial activation during pregnancy, suggesting this may confer additional cardiovascular risk in those women with familial hyperlipidemia. Among young healthy women, the risk of cardiovascular disease is almost negligent. However, when we investigate the presence of cardiovascular disease in a small study that included women with the familial hyperlipidemia in Norway and Netherlands, we observed among 102 women, eight reported having an event, five of these within six years of their last pregnancy. Wow. But although the number was small, it is interesting and slightly alarming, and it may support the notion that this um, hyperlipidemia has more impact during pregnancy, influencing later risk. And then the reason I was like, oh, I have to read this is because it said there was a um, study more than 25 years ago that maternal hypercholesterolemia during pregnancy induces changes in fetal aorta that confer long-term susceptibility to develop atherosclerosis in these children. Oh, that's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. I feel like we don't really pay much attention to this, even though heart disease is still the number one killer um, after fentanyl overdose. Um, I don't know if that's really true, but, um, I think I went to know is probably number two, um, but, uh, way too high, way too high, way too high. Um, but heart disease is still a number one killer. And we don't, I just, I feel like even my patients, when I have told them like, you have familial hyperlipidemia, like we really need to start statins early, you know, in their twenties or thirties. And they're like, no way, I'm not taking that. that my, my grandmother takes that. I'm not, you know, I feel fine. Um, and so I think we do need to pay more attention to this. So yeah, good. Really interesting. It was a really interesting article and, um, thank you for sending me it because I really geeked out and had a fun time getting ready to talk today as I always do. And I think, you know, kind of going back to that, I mean, I think if routine cholesterol is not being done during pregnancy, that maybe we need to, as kind of that fourth trimester care, need to incorporate uh, cholesterol lipid screening for our patients who may have not had that kind of care. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good point. And maybe it will also give us an opportunity to coordinate care more with cardiologists, because I see so many patients who have had preeclampsia, or just, you know, yes. pregnancy-induced hypertension that mm -hmm. aren't really getting close enough follow-up in between their pregnancies or going on to cardiologists. And I think having more interdisciplinary conversations around this topic will also help them to get more comfortable with what can I do to treat this patient if they are lactating. And if we're encouraging parents to, you know, continue breastfeeding for two years, that's a long period. There are medications that are safe yes. and um, they need to know what they are. 
Right, right. And I would just say, you know, just in closing of this topic is that I think we all know of someone, a woman in their 40s, who had no other obvious risk factors for heart disease and had heart attack. Um, and you think, how could that happen? She's 44, you know, she doesn't, she exercises, she, you know, is not overweight, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it just may be this effect from pregnancy with that familial hyperlipidemia that was never addressed uh, that uh, we're missing the boat on some of these people. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks for talking about that. I love talking about medicine in general. So that was super fun. I will look forward to our next get together. Yes. Great. Yeah. Take care, Karen. We'll be in touch. Thanks, Anne. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.